Sammy, welcome to the show. Thank you, good to be with you. Yeah, I haven't seen you in a while. It's been? Yeah. We've been very busy. I think both of us have a little bit more white in our beard. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm finally growing one. Catch up to you. First of all, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, where you're from, what you've been doing. and So it's always interesting when you ask a Palestinian where they're from. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's easy to say I live in Bethlehem, but where I'm from originally is my father is from the Jerusalem and Yaffa. So parents split between Yaffa and Jerusalem on my father's side. And my mother is from Gaza. Mm-hmm. And my father's family lived in Jerusalem. Up until 1948, when the war happened, uh, that led to the Palestinian Nakba, the catastrophe, and the family became refugees. My grandfather was killed in the war as a civilian, and my grandmother and seven kids were kicked out from their home and became refugees and ended up in Bethlehem. And as I said, my mother is from Gaza, and I still have family. All of my mother's family, uncles, aunts, cousins, still live in Gaza until this day. You're in touch with them? Uh, in touch through social media and through telephone conversations. Mm-hmm. The last time I was able to go to Gaza was in 1998. And the last time I was able to go to Gaza was 2005. So you were there even after me. Right. <laughs> uh, and for them to come to the West Bank, to come to Bethlehem, they need to have, of course, permits, and it's very, very difficult to get these permits. So mm-hmm. in the last 20 years, I've seen my uncle once from Gaza. Wow. Okay, and now you're in Bethlehem. Now I'm in Bethlehem. I was actually born in the U.S. My parents were living there, but uh, moved to Bethlehem when I was six months old. Uh-huh. So I've lived all of my life in Bethlehem until, until I went to college in the U.S. for about six, seven years, undergraduate and master's program, and then came back in 1996. I came back at that time because I was excited like many people were about this peace process. The Oslo process. Yeah, the the Oslo peace process that was presented to us Mm -hmm. as the miracle gift, the gift of all gifts, that we should accept it because it's the only way for us as Palestinians to live without occupation and for Israelis and Palestinians to live together as neighbors. You know, the perfect Cinderella story was presented as the Oslo peace process and I came back to play my role. Mm -hmm. Which was what at the time? What was your role? My role was to support uh, the peace process by, first of all, building the idea of a Palestinian state Mm -hmm. and uh, establishing peace between Palestinians and Israelis in a two-state framework. Uh, But very quickly, I began to see the failures of the Oslo peace process and the fact that it didn't even achieve what it promised us to achieve. And in 1999, as the Oslo peace process was failing, I started this organization called Holy Land Trust. And our aim in the organization is to engage in asking the deeper questions of what it means to live in peace and justice and equality in this land. Because even if we have two states, it doesn't mean there's peace. Right. It doesn't mean we have the land and our relationships in the land. It doesn't mean we even celebrate each other's existence. Mm -hmm. The Oslo peace process for me was a process to actually create more separation and segregation. It was divorce. It, it was, and it was a dirty divorce. It was a nasty divorce. It wasn't even a good one. Mm-hmm. It was divorcing, and it was embedded in fear that both sides have in each other, not mm-hmm. a real movement to actually bring peace to the communities. Mm-hmm. And that's why, for me, it was one of the reasons to start this uh, organization. Okay. 
And now here we are, uh, decades after the Oslo peace process, we see that it hasn't worked, it can't work, it won't work. In my opinion, it shouldn't work because obviously we're both connected to all parts of this land. You know, exactly. your people, my people, I'm not going to give up on my connection to Bethlehem and Jericho and Hebron and you're not going to give up your connection to Yafo and Gaza. And uh, yeah, we, we were deceived and, and we, we, uh, we were so much in the deception that we actually started deceiving each other, mm -hmm. even as the peoples of this land, buying into a solution that in reality, as you said, nobody really is convinced of. Mm -hmm. uh, but when it, the solution is presented as the only solution and, and when things are presented as desperate and there is no way out except one path, then people went for it. Mm -hmm. but, but in the hearts of the people, as you say, you know, we're, we're in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, and, and I think it was... No, Judea, this is Judea. Judea area, yeah, but the whole, the whole uh, West Bank area. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it was you who told me, like, 80% of Jewish historic religious sites exist mm -hmm. in this right. part the of the land. Yeah, it's the uh, cradle of Jewish civilization, exactly. for sure. And so who am I to deny this? Mm -hmm. How can I really honor this and celebrate this with you? And then I think it was you who told me, where, where does 80% of your history exist? Mm -hmm. And for me, like, wow, I've, I've been duped, actually, into believing that, like, uh, as a Christian, Bethlehem is only it. But mm -hmm. no, for, for me, my ancestry goes into Nazareth, goes into the Galilee, mm -hmm. goes into Jerusalem, goes into these areas. And I want to be able to have full access uh, mm -hmm. to these places as well, just like you want access to these places as well. No. And so I think th there, there was, I don't know, like, maybe a sacred reason why the Oslo peace process failed. We could talk about the technicalities of its failure. But I actually believe at the end of the day it would have failed even mm -hmm. if people engaged in it with the best intention to achieve it. It had to fail. It had to fail right. and it has failed and we need to begin to look into right. alternatives post-Oslo, post-two-state solution. What is the manifestation where we honor our differences but not from isolation mm -hmm. but from celebration. Right. This is how we need to engage. Wait, and care about what's important to one another. Like actually to care, you know, for me, peace isn't just a ceasefire. Peace isn't just like, I'm not going to hurt you, you don't hurt me, and we'll live our separate existences on two sides of a wall. No, no, we are in this land, mm -hmm. we are in one land, uh, we love this land, we all have ancestry in this mm -hmm. land. I mean, my ancestry goes back to being Jewish as well in this land mm -hmm. as well. You've taken the genetic test. I've done the DNA test. You're, you're Ashkenazi. I'm, I'm like the perfect mixture of Ashkenazi and Muzerahi when it comes uh -huh. to, to Judaism. Uh -huh. I mean, that's my ancestor, that's uh -huh. fine. I mean, I'm not going to be an Israeli citizen by, by claiming this. By showing the DNA test. Yeah, but, but, but for me, it's about, yeah, this, this is one land. Uh -huh. And, and it, is, it is Holy Land. This is right. why we call it Holy Land Trust, because we are entrusted with this land. The Creator has given us this land. Mm -hmm. We need to honor it. We need to make it flourish. We need to make it become a model. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, I really yes. believe the moment we really engage in making this land a model of peace mm -hmm. and justice and equality and honoring the diversity of this land, then it can create a paradigm shift globally as well. No, absolutely. I, I actually do believe very strongly that my people came back to life after 2,000 years in order to create a civilization that will inspire the world toward something better. Exactly. And that can actually challenge the paradigms and structures that humanity, even if we're going to say that some of those structures are the best mankind has done so far you know, representative democracy and capitalism and all these things, we can do better. Yeah, humanity can do better. Capitalism issue, but yeah, like <laughs> <laughs> no, here, meaning humanity can do better. Humanity has to do better. Yeah. And I what we're doing is destroying the world as well. Right. These structures are creating a lot of destruction, mm -hmm. uh, manipulation and slavery and destruction of the environment. And we need to really be aware of this. And again, this land can 
become this model. Right. And, and that's the goal. The goal is for us together to create a society here that can really shine to the rest of the world. And, exactly. and the Oslo process did exactly the opposite. The Oslo process completely ignored the identities, the aspirations, the grievances of both sides, and just said, we're going to draw a line on a map, and you'll be on this side, and you'll be on that side. And it, that didn't even happen. Right. Even the line drawn was mm-hmm. an even clear line. Right. Because, uh, you know, as, as you know, and, and for me, one of the experiences that we had as Palestinians, we were promised the land, mm-hmm. but the idea that the, the, the issue of Jewish neighborhoods and communities and what we call settlements continued to exist and to grow and even doubled in size during the Oslo peace process also was questioning. How can you be talking about two-state solutions, two independent states, while that movement still continues to happen? Well, we're solidifying our hold on this side. Exactly. Right. And so it should have been made from the clear. If Israel wants to slide this whole land, then let it happen and mm-hmm. let us deal with that and mm-hmm. work with that to achieve a sense of peace and equality within that framework. Yeah. But to go for a two-state and not to engage in a two-state right. at the same yeah. time it was, was also very challenging. It was never real. It was never real. It was never real. It was never real. Because I think, for, like, honestly, on a deep level, from the perspective of the Israeli leadership, and I don't just mean Netanyahu, I mean Rabin, I think from the perspective of the Israeli leadership, it was always something being forced on us by the Americans. It was never something we wanted. It was always something that the West was making us do, and therefore we weren't engaging in it in good faith, because we didn't want it. I mean, I agree with you that there was, of course, pressure, but I also would suggest also this movement within Israel to create an exclusive Jewish national Zionist state independent of others who are there that was also presented as the only possible way to do that is in a framework of a two-state solution. The demographic threat. So uh, the way I understand the demographic threat as it's being presented by the Israeli establishment and the media is a way to convince the Israeli public to go along with the two-state paradigm. But it could be that a lot of the political leadership are concerned about that. But that wasn't the language in the beginning. In the beginning, the language was peace. We're going to have peace, and we're going to put a border between us. And uh I think for the Israeli left, that was the argument. For us to maintain Mm -hmm. our democratic, national, Mm -hmm. zero state, we have to get rid of those who are threatening to this. Uh And the two-state. This is, uh, I I think, at the uh, level of the leadership. So I think that that is something that definitely needs to be engaged. First of all, I think that fear comes from a very shallow understanding of what the term Jewish state could mean. Because in reality, a Jewish state is not just a European-style nation-state with Jewish decorations, but a state that expresses the identity and the values of the Jewish people and its policies and in its institutions. And if we're serious about creating something new here, about coming back to life and, and creating a Jewish society once again, then we absolutely have to ask real questions about what Jewish state means beyond, okay, we're going to put some Jewish decorations in the flag and we're going to have a national anthem that talks about the Jews. It's true that demography can threaten that, that if there are too many non-Jews in the land, we could lose our decorations. Well, this is, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think whatever system of governance we create has to be very unique, very creative, and then really based on deep interactions and discussions and a deep trust building between the peoples of this land. I don't even say two people, the peoples of this land. The peoples of this land. And to really engage in creating our unique Mm. model of what it means to live together. Right. I I I agree. Western-style democracies don't work. These are not working now. We see this in the U.S., we see this in Europe, where one wins and one loses, and Mm -hmm. this is just competition between the left and the right, Democrats, Republicans, and whoever. Who are both wings of the same system anyway. Exactly. They're playing the same game, playing the same system, Mm -hmm. and and we need to create our own unique model. We don't have to adopt. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're ancient. Why do we adopt new models of living when we have our ancient ways of connecting to each other and connecting to the land? 
Well, because we're afraid to apply them to the 21st century. We're afraid that they're ancient. And, and you know, I'll tell you something. Part of the mythology, the ideology of American exceptionalism is that you should forget the past. That in the past you were a barbarian and you've advanced. And Western civilization as it exists right now is supposed to be perceived as the highest point humanity has reached. And therefore, when you start talking about the fact that we're ancient and we have models of organizing ourselves and creating structures and, uh, and societies, that's scary to somebody because the truth is, from the American perspective, from the perspective of the United States, you go back not thousands of years, a couple hundred years, you have genocide of an indigenous people they and slavery. They, they cannot face right, their past, and their past is based on destruction. Right. And they don't have indigenous roots that they could connect to. We do have our indigenous yeah. roots to connect to. This is the foundation. It's beautiful to see also global mm. movements emerging. Again, not in the Western, European, and American structures, mm. but around the world where indigenous culture is gaining momentum mm -hmm. again, reconnecting people and reconnecting right. with that it's culture. True. And they're understanding that systems of government, circles work, uh, where everybody's voice is heard, mm -hmm. consent engagement. These are models that kept humanity alive for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, as you say, we have this modern Western system that has presented itself as a colonialist system. Therefore, it is the only one to be accepted. And, and serves the interests of the ruling class, and that's it. Exactly. Right. And that, that has to end. And I think this is why we have to create that big disconnect, the mm -hmm. divorce. The biggest divorce we need to engage in is between our indigenous cultures in this land and Western European American uh, systems of capitalism and democracy. Amen, right on. Uh, so I would say that the two real conversations we need to have, especially on the Jewish side right now, is first of all, what does it mean to have a Jewish state? What does that actually mean beyond a bunch of superficial decorations on national structures? And beyond that, uh, what does democracy mean? So I think uh, d democracy is very easy for me to define. I would say democracy is a system that empowers people to influence the structures they live under. That's it. With voting, without voting, doesn't matter. If you are able to influence the structures you live under, you have democratic rights. And you and have democratic empowerment. Diversity. Yeah. Respecting the rights mm. of others fully. This, mm. is a, this is a key component of democracy. Right. It's not about undermining any voice. Mm. But it's about influencing the system for the benefit of the all. Right. And I think on the Palestinian side, the conversation is can we also disconnect from the idea of having an independent state as the only means of sustaining ourselves mm -hmm. as a nation. But this European concept of nation-state. Exactly, exactly. So what does it mean to be a people's group? What does it mean for us as Palestinians to connect with the entire Palestinian community that lives in this land? Mm -hmm. You know, this green line created separation mm -hmm. between Palestinians who live in Nazareth and Haifa and those who live in Bethlehem and Hebron. All of a sudden, they have an identity. We have an identity. The refugees have an identity. People in Gaza, no, we are one people. Mm -hmm. We are one nation. We have one culture. We have one language. We have one history. And so for me, it's important to bring that back into play and say we are here in this land. The green line means nothing to us. It shouldn't mean anything to us. I have family that live up in the north near the Galilee. Mm -hmm. But the only thing that separates us is a green line, and they have a blue ID, and I have a green ID. And the wall and some checkpoints. Of course, on that line that was uh -huh. created, again, yeah. by Western colonialist systems. And to say that, no. I mean, the fact that they say they're more than mm -hmm. Isaac doesn't make us separate. Mm -hmm. and, and so for us... It's, it's a paradigm shift in consciousness mm -hmm. for me that we need to begin to engage in. Right. And, and for me, I would say even as a Palestinian, moving into this space will give the Palestinian people even more rights mm -hmm. than what the Oslo and the two-state solution were presenting us, mm -hmm. the, the fake uh, solution that we were all duped into. Right, because we need to talk about real inclusion within a Jewish society. 
real inclusion within the land, within right. Jewish society. Like when I say Jewish society, like for me, it's really important on my side that we actually talk about. I, I think right now the state of Israel has a very hard Jewish identity that's shallow. Mm. It's shallow and hard, and obviously it's exclusivist and it's othering and uh, it marginalizes non-Jews within the society. But if we could make the Jewish character of the state much deeper than it is right now, but at the same time much softer, it could create space uh, and spaces of dignity for non-Jews who have their own identities and as representatives of this other identity can play like a, a serious role within our society. This is, this is a partnership for the future. Right. We need to be looking into. Mm -hmm. Both peoples are here. We're going to be here. We love this land. And it's not just about finding ways to accommodate each other. Mm -hmm. to build this, this is partnership. Right. It's like this beauty. I mm -hmm. mean, like, I want to come to your home and, and celebrate with you your events in Shabbat. I don't want to create anything in me that says, no, I shouldn't, I couldn't. Uh, it's, it's After boycott this, boycott that. This, we have to end this. We mm -hmm. really have to end this. But as Palestinians, we also need to feel that there is a recognition mm -hmm. of our rights to this land, that we are also equal. It's not even about the citizenship, that mm -hmm. I have equal access mm -hmm. to the things that you have. No, and to, to acknowledge the injustices and, uh, that took place as well. Acknowledge the injustices, mm -hmm. heal our wounds from the mm -hmm. past, and create a new future together. So maybe we should talk about that. What does healing look like for you? When you talk about healing the wounds of the past, what does that really mean practically for Palestinians, well, in your opinion? I mean, for me, uh, I see both communities mm -hmm. as being traumatized. Mm -hmm. The, the experience of the Jewish community, especially in the West of Europe, for hundreds and thousands of years, is, is one of a disaster. Yeah. And uh, of course, the no the Ashkenazi Jews specifically have a lot of inherited trauma. Yeah, yeah the Shoah and what happened there for me. Th mm. This is the, a trauma, as we know, mm. individually or collectively, becomes the motivation in decision making. Right. The, the Shoah, by the way, was just the finale of it. That was just the climax. I mean, well, both the climax. Anti-Semitism uh, mm -hmm. does exist, and we cannot deny this. Mm. And the Palestinian trauma is our history of the last hundred years of being marginalized, marginalized, destroyed. And the, the Nakba uh, was, was a big, again, milestone in this. And the fear that as we see as Palestinians, you know, our, the connection to the land, as we see more land being taken and more Jewish neighborhoods being built and less access to us, less movement to us, then this fear and this trauma becomes the motivation. Mm -hmm. And we see violence. We, we see, I mean, people who are traumatized do violence. Mm -hmm and react violently. So we have to address the traumas of the communities of this mm -hmm. land. We have to heal. We cannot be motivated by fear mm -hmm. in how we build the future. It doesn't work. I mean, in a marriage, mm -hmm. people are married out of fear. Mm -hmm. Then how long does this marriage last? No, it'd be a disaster. It'd be a nightmare. It'll be a nightmare. Right. It'll we'll be like prison. The marriage will be prison. Each other. They will hate each other. They will mm -hmm. negate each other. They'll try to undermine each other. Mm -hmm. And at one point, there'll be a very ugly divorce. Mm -hmm. So this is why for us, we have to engage. And I'm going to say this word. How can we create systems of love mm -hmm. and compassion and care for each other that become the motivation? Mm -hmm. And we do that by creating a healing of the past and being motivated by a new vision for the future we need to engage in. One of the things that I would like to ask you, actually, one of the things I'm involved with, and, and it's an ongoing struggle. This is just something that is, I guess, part of my growth and part of my journey and, and part of where I find myself right now. I 
obviously do want Jews living in the West Bank. The West Bank is the cradle of Jewish civilization. It's where most of our history unfolded. It's where we've been struggling to come back to for thousands of years. But I don't want to live as a settler, and I don't want any Jew living as a settler. In fact, I think to live as a settler in our own land is, is a negation of our own identity. And before we even get into what it does to you, so you mentioned that Jewish communities that are built and take land that limit or restrict Palestinian access. Is there a way, from your perspective, for me to live here as a Jew in the West Bank without being a settler? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is what Oslo presented us. Mm -hmm. So that's why I used that argument during Oslo, when, we were, when, when I was convinced mm -hmm. of the Oslo peace process. Now, for me, I have redefined what it means to be a settler. So for me, I would say a person who is a settler is a person who doesn't recognize my full equal rights in this land no matter where they are living. Mm -hmm. And a person who recognizes my full equal rights in this land is a colleague, is a partner for peace. And so for you, I don't look at you as a settler. I look at you as a partner that is really engaging in peace work with me. Somebody who lives in Tel Aviv who doesn't recognize my full equal rights in this land, that is a settler. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is how I, I redefine it. Well, that certainly makes more sense. Because for me, it's about how do you engage with the other. Mm -hmm. It's not where you are present. Mm -hmm. So those who are living in the West Bank don't recognize my rights, I would see them as settlers. Mm -hmm. Those who are living in Ilat who recognize my rights, they're colleagues. Mm -hmm. So, th so it's, uh, again, a paradigm shift in right, right. even the definitions that... It's not use. just about geography, but, uh, but you should know it's maybe one of the ironic twists of this whole story that it's the Jews living in the West Bank who are much more deeply connected to our identity and our history and, and so forth who have the potential to not be settlers have the potential oh, totally to not live here I mean, as colonizers. You know, the, the, I mean, part of what the Oslo did was, was it sort of made us look into certain groups of people as the enemy of peace. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when they became the enemy of peace and were defined as the enemy of peace, they engaged differently than they would have if they mm -hmm. were not defined as. Right. And so again, the right. settlers for the longest time were seen as the enemy of peace. Right. And therefore, they engage in actions to try to push back on that mm -hmm. definition. Some positive, some negative. And for and the, the most part, yeah, that's for sure. The side, groups that have been negated, religious groups, religious Muslim groups that mm -hmm. have been negated, sadly pushed back in very violent ways, mm -hmm. instead of being invited. Imagine, right. imagine if these groups of people from the beginning were mm -hmm. actually invited. And it's interesting, it's right. our leaderships on both sides that negated our own right. people. So it was the Israeli left that negated the settlements, and it was the Palestinian Fatah who negated the groups like Hamas and Islam, which you had, and labeled them mm. as the enemies. Fanatics, radicals. Fanatics, instead of saying, if we really wanted to engage in peace work, mm. from the beginning, we would have said, everybody come to the table, mm -hmm. everybody sit in this room, and let's work this together. Right, right. No, that's true. I, I do say often that it's really important, and I think a lot of the work that I'm involved with is trying to bring the quote-unquote extremists together, those who are marginalized from the process on both sides, to really hear each other's stories, engage in each other's stories and narratives and identities without feeling fear that if his story is true, my story is less true. And it has to come from those who are really most fully living the aspirations of their people, those who were, like you said, marginalized from the process. And at the end of the day, there would be no peace in this land as a result of a bunch of westernized Palestinians from Ramallah and westernized Jews from Tel Aviv signing an American piece of paper. That is not where peace is going to come from. And who completely negate the religious connection mm -hmm. and the religious history of the land of the people.
religious here. Right. Not even religious, I mean, I would say even sociocultural history. I mean, for us it's complicated because the whole idea of defining Jewish identity as a religious identity is only a couple of centuries old. Yeah. Meaning uh, until, yeah. I, until about 200 years ago, we were Palestinian refugees. And then we kind of like uh, had this illusion, this like uh, offer of inclusion in France and Germany. So we suddenly redefined our identity as a religious one. Like we could be Germans with the Jewish religion or Frenchmen with the Jewish religion, but when it didn't really work out. Because specifically the Oslo peace process, the uh -huh. secular leaders in Oslo defined uh -huh. religion as the problem. Uh -huh. And they wanted to engage in a non-religious right. engagement of peace work. And uh -huh. that was for me the problem. Uh -huh. So religious or not is yeah. fine, but, but to negate completely religion right. out of the equation. To negate the identities. The like identities like right, the values. Yeah. Religion is the problem. Let's take it out of the equation right. and deal with this as a secular Western right. approach to peacemaking. That was a key reason why. It's like this Western illusion of multiculturalism. You know, I grew up in New York City. And there's some people who eat pasta and some people who eat uh, with chopsticks and some people who eat bagels. But everybody is supposed to watch NBA basketball and send their kids to college and make money. And that's supposed to be like the American dream you're pursuing. And, and that's kind of like what you're describing here, that everybody has to buy into the Western paradigm of what peace is supposed to look like and what uh, reconciliation is supposed to look like without actually taking people's real deep ancient identities into consideration and values into consideration and of course such a piece can't work and it, it, it seems like it was almost set up to fail and, and sometimes I am very suspicious because it's uh, interesting to me that the party that benefits the most from our conflict is actually the one we trust to broker peace between us so I think that it feels almost designed to fail yeah I mean for us we trust the Americans because we feel that they're the only country that can put pressure again that our yeah. leadership not, not yeah. personally because we feel that they're the only country that can put pressure on Israel. Mm -hmm. And as you've been saying also, Israel also has the ability to fall under that pressure. Right, right. To a certain extent. Uh, but, but I agree with you. I mean, yeah. I mean, they have created more of a disaster than mm -hmm. any bringing us together and finding a solution between us. Right. And mm -hmm. again, there's this colonialism. Mm -hmm. Colonialism is about separation. And no. colonialism is about power. Correct. It's about domination. And the American system has been only aimed for its own benefit, which is to dominate this region. Let me ask you this, Sammy. Are you optimistic in your ability, my ability, our ability to convince a critical mass of young Israelis and Palestinians that we're not each other's enemies, but that we actually have a shared struggle to liberate both our peoples from outsiders trying to push us into conflict with one another? Well, I mean, if I want to be really honest, I would say this is difficult. Yeah. Because as Palestinians, we still experience the daily hardship of living right. under the Israeli military sure. rule. And so, to, for me to go to Palestinians and say, yes, these are not, no, you are, they, they would say, yes, the Israelis are, are an enemy. And right, 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 okay. So they don't see, they don't see us facing the same issue. They actually, for most Palestinians, they see, especially with the current administration in the U.S., that mm -hmm. this is the best thing for Israel. Israel mm -hmm. gets whatever it wants. They don't see you. They don't see your view. They don't, mm -hmm. see, they cannot right. be convinced. The, or I mean, they can be convinced if talked to, but they they cannot see. Yeah, it's hard for them to see it. Very right, hard right, for right. them to see that there are Israelis who actually reject mm -hmm. American engagement mm -hmm. and interference in mm -hmm. this issue. For them, they see most Americans as and most Israelis are as being, and we see this. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see celebrations. I mean, you, you show me a bottle of wine with, <laughs> you know, like Pompeo's name on it, right? On it's it, it's slavery, but meant it's it's yeah, mental yeah, subjugation. Yeah. So so. So until that voice, your voice, and others grow, right. 
we will not be able to see this. And part of it is also to see yours and others that mm -hmm. we get to address the injustice that exists in this land as well. Right. And that's where the partnership. Now, for on the Palestinian side, most Palestinians sadly have become completely resigned mm -hmm. and completely hopeless and indifferent to anything. Most people are just, you know, take care of whatever daily needs they need and mm -hmm. live life as much as they can. Mm -hmm. and, and they're not interested or engaged in or maybe they don't, they're hopeless that there is mm -hmm. any political engagement that right. they could do. Making money uh, with high unemployment rates, right. with very difficult uh, social issues, with mm -hmm. the disaster of living in the system that we have already mm -hmm. uh, with the Palestinian Authority. Most people are just mm -hmm. afraid and they just want to live their daily life. They don't right. want to challenge anybody. They just want to live their daily life, which is just feeds more into the yeah. disaster that is building up for the future for mm -hmm. us. But this, this is the challenge. I don't know on the Israeli side. If, uh no, look, I, I very much believe that uh, Jewish and Palestinian liberation are intertwined at this point. Uh, part of it maybe comes from an understanding for how anti-Semitism works systemically in a capitalist mode of production in a capitalist system that uh, we're pushed into this kind of middle agent oppressor role where Jews who really do feel vulnerable and feel like we need a big powerful Gentile to help protect us we are very easily enlisted into managing the oppressions of others as long as it gives us a sense of security and it's, uh, of course, easier when uh, we can say that the other that we're participating in the oppression of is actually not somebody we're oppressing, but somebody who wants to kill us, exactly. and somebody who's tried to kill us. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we can't ignore the fact that the majority of Israelis experience Palestinians as just part of a larger Arab identity that's tried to wipe us out many, many, many times. Like, that's the Israeli attitude, is these are people who've tried to kill us so many times, we somehow survived, we somehow became strong, and now we're going to stop them from killing us. I think that is how most Israelis are perceiving it. But our liberation is breaking free of the middle agent oppressor role. Our liberation is saying, we don't need to be on the side of the oppressor. We can be on the side of the oppressed. Not only that, we have the power. We, I mean, let's be honest, Israel, according to rumors, might even have nuclear weapons. We could be the leader of the oppressed, but we have to make a decision. We could be like Darth Vader in Return of the Jedi who makes it, only Darth Vader can kill the Emperor. Yeah. You know, but he has to make this choice. Exactly. He has to say, and that's Darth Vader's liberation. His liberation is making the choice. Yeah, yeah I mean, I agree with you. Uh, but, but to get to that <laughs> point, I mean, uh, yeah, I think as long as we're living in this fear and this existential threat on both sides, mm -hmm. we will always perceive ourselves, each other, as the enemy yes. of us and as a threat to us. And again, this is what the U.S. wants. This is what the colonialist system wants. Right. They have done this throughout the world. This is not right. It's not unique to here, and, 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 and it's an old British tactic. The British did it here. The truth is, that the yeah. the U.S. only picked up where the British of left course. off. Exactly. And the truth is, when people ask me, like, what has Israel really done wrong? What have Palestinians really done wrong? I say that the worst thing both Palestinians and Israelis have done is allowed ourselves to be manipulated by foreigners against one another. Exactly. That's the greatest crime both leaderships are completely, guilty of. Completely, I fully agree with you. Yeah. The U.S. is just one of the players, right. many other regional and global mm. players that mm. have used us in this chess pawn game right. against each other. The situation is not easy, and we need to engage in deep, deep work yeah. in this land for things to move forward. Yeah. For sure. Well, Sammy, uh, always a pleasure to talk to you, real revolutionary thinker. Where can listeners check out some of your work? Well, the website is holylandtrust.org. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the access to the website. 
and of course they could contact me as well directly. And you travel a lot, you speak for many groups, and sometimes we travel together. Yeah, we've done mm -hmm. it, we need to do this more, yeah. to speak more. So we'll try, to, uh, we'll try to make that challenge happen. Challenge people and how they think, mm -hmm. change their, challenge their paradigms. Absolutely, well, Sammy, thank you so much for joining me. This is Yudah Cohen, Bitfazon Vision Magazine. You're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Check out the show notes at visionmac.org backslash the next stage.